I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 30th, 2012. It's going to be the second Monday in a row. I'm going to have to do my light edition on Monday. A little bit behind here. My, uh, my daughter... Christina, middle child. She gave birth to her first child over the weekend, uh, my first grandson. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work. Now, we're going to be doing our light edition today because I'm desperately trying to catch up after falling behind over the weekend because my daughter, well, she gave, like I said, she gave birth to uh, our first uh, grandchild, and his name is Benjamin Athanasius Sapaw. My daughter married uh, into the Sapaw family. So uh, we're very excited uh, for the arrival of our first grandchild. And uh, the, the family is, well, just p tickled pink uh, over uh, the, well, actually, it's tickled blue because pink is like, anyway, <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting all confused. So that being the case, I'm, I'm just like a smidge behind on a few things and I'm trying to catch up. So that uh, I can spend the rest of the uh, the week really doing some hard hitting stuff. You'll you'll see as the week unfolds. But today, what I've done is I've tapped uh, the shoulder of uh, Dr. Adam Francisco from Concordia University, Irvine. And uh, back in August of last year, we played one of his lectures on contemporary challenges to the New Testament Gospels, and uh, he discussed eyewitness accounts and the non-canonical Gospels. Uh, today, he's going to be taking a look at what is known as textual criticism. How are we to understand uh, the attacks against uh, Scripture based upon men like, well, Bart Ehrman and others, you know, who are higher critics and who are like like uber skeptics, uh, should we be worried because there's variants in the uh, the texts of the New Testament that have been handed down over the years to us? 
will answer no, we shouldn't be worried at all. And uh, Dr. Adam Francisco will unpack all of this for us. This is a good uh, lecture to uh, you know to listen to and to understand, especially if you uh, are in need of uh, understanding how we did you know disc- you know properly understand textual variants and what is textual criticism and is it a friend or foe of Christianity? And uh, Dr. Francisco will unpack all of that for us. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Adam Francisco. All right, should we go ahead and get started? Um, uh, Last week, we looked at the issue of, or the claim that there are a bunch of ancient gospels out there in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all claim different things about Jesus. And I think I made the point, though I don't recall because I was jet-lagged last week, that there are some folks out there who will say, because we have these other ancient texts, uh, one can kind of pick and choose which gospel, if they want to choose a gospel, to follow. Uh, For example, there's a, a famous scholar out of Princeton University, I think she's still at Princeton, named Elaine Pagels who in her book, Beyond Belief, which is a a book on the Gospel of Thomas, says that when she read the Gospel of Thomas for the first time, when it made the comment about there, that when one becomes knowledgeable about certain things, uh, they can, in a sense, work out their own salvation. In other words, salvation comes from within. She says, when she she read that, it seems so self-evidently true that she held the, the gospel, from that she held the gospel of Thomas in, in pride of place. Um, one can't pick and choose what documents they're going to use uh, to understand what Jesus said and did. One has to, if we're a reasonable person, we'll go back to the earliest sources, the sources or the writers who are in the best position to report on this man, Jesus. And the only ones we have that are from written in the first century by eyewitnesses and companions of eyewitnesses are the ones you find in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Despite the claims of contemporary scholars out there that there are a whole host of others, they're all, as we talked about last week, all very late, not written by eyewitnesses, even though some of the authors attributed to, or wrote, gave titles to these texts like the Gospel of Thomas or the <coughs> Secret Gospel of Mark, they're all late or some of them, as we looked at last week, are even forgeries. Um, are there any questions, before we get into the issue of what, we'll, what uh, we call text criticism today, uh, are there any questions from left over from last week? We ended very late, uh, so we were kind of pressed for time. And I'm, I'm kind of, Dr. Van Voris has just sat down. I know he's got a question, but uh, he's going to probably hold it to the end. <laughs> he's kind of jumpy. <laughs> All right, let's... Um, Go ahead and get into the issue of text criticism. Uh, there's a, a great book out there, a great popular level book. Um, I'm not recommending that you buy it, uh, but it is a good book to have uh, if you can get it for, for cheap or if you're so inclined to, uh, to collecting books, uh, written by a man named Lee Strobel called The Case for the Real Jesus. It's a, very, it's a journalist approach to issues Facing historic or classic Christian Christianity today uh, from those who claim that the historical Jesus that you and I worship is not the true Jesus. Uh, he, Lee Strobel says that there are essentially four major 
criticisms out there. One is this claim that there are other ancient gospels out there and that the church just arbitrarily chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to hold up as the orthodox uh, gospels. The other ones were marginalized for political reasons. The second major claim Lee Strobel got documents is that even that some scholars make is that even if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are were written by eyewitnesses or companions of eyewitnesses, the nature of these texts is such that they're untrustworthy. These te- the, the manuscripts that we have uh, down through the centuries of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whether they're fragments or complete collections, cod- codices, um, are f- riddled with, as some will put it, errors or variants, copyist variants or copyist errors. Uh, what do I mean by that? There are, we have over, somewhere between about 5,700 or 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. If you add ancient or old translations of, uh, manuscript translations of, of the New Testament, the number is up uh, anywhere as high as 30,000, 25 to 30,000 manuscripts. If you took all these manuscripts, laid them side by side, uh, you would find that no two manuscripts agree. There are copious errors in these manuscripts. The, the discipline, some would call it the science of text criticism, looks at this and looks at all these manuscripts and tries to get to the original autographs because we do not have the original apostolic writings, or at least we don't think we have. Um, I approach this subject with fear and trembling. This in my mind, is one of the most difficult subjects for the faithful Orthodox or classical Christian to come to terms with. But we've got to bring it up. Because it's simply a matter of fact that in the manuscripts we have these variants. But there, there are scholars out there who will say, well, see, because there are these variants, we can't trust the records. They're actually a very small minority the majority of folks who approach the text of the New Testament and look at it from a critical perspective um, are largely conservative or moderate to conservative Christian believers. And they're not believers first, necessarily. The result of their research leads them to trust in the reliability of the New Testament. Um, what we're not talking about here is higher criticism, or what some would call higher criticism. Some of you have heard that term before. Um, higher criticism is sort of an outdated approach to the New Testament, actually to the whole Bible. Um, it, it was born, you could trace its origins back to the 17th century if you really want to look far, far back in the past. It really thrived in the late 18th and especially in the 19th and 20th century. But it's a, for the most part, it was higher criticism was guided by this assumption um, that the gospel records, or by extension, the entire Bible was filled with mythology. That is, the, the Bible is not true. That's their initial assumption. And higher critics approach the Bible in three different routes. Uh, one was the route of source criticism. The Bible is obviously not true, they claimed. Uh, so, but we, in order to explain why we have the Bible, we've got to get to the original source. Many of you have heard of Q, right? Uh, Q doesn't stand for Quran. And when I write works on Islam, I'm always abbreviating Q or Quran as Q. Q is a German word for, or stands for a German word, quella, source. Uh, there are scholars 
from the past, and there are still some around, actually quite a few around today, who believe that there is a, a document out there. They call it Q, but it's the original document from which the gospel writers wrote, uh, drew their information. It's interesting when you read works, popular works on you know that come, that are from the source critical perspective. They talk as if Q actually exists, as if it actually is in a library somewhere. The fact is, we don't have any evidence of there being a Q document. There's lots of reasons to, to perhaps believe that there may be a source. I mean, for example, Luke, the first four chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Luke talks about how he. He talked with eyewitnesses, but also went to the sources, written sources, he implies. Um, maybe that was Matthew, uh, Mark, um, some would say probably Q. We, we simply don't know. So there are reasons to believe that there was a Q, but there's no evidence that Q actually exists. But it's interesting that some people act as if we have it somewhere in a library or museum out there. Uh, that's source criticism. Another form of criticism is redaction criticism, which regards the gospel writers or the biblical authors not as authors of a primary source document, but as editors of a text that they received and that they embellished or, or wrote or put stuff into. Um, those who are um, from the redactionary school of higher criticism oftentimes when it comes to the Gospels, regard Mark as the first Gospel written. Um, they say it's the earliest. Um, and it's this God, And if you look at Mark and consider it the first Gospel and read the rest of the Gospels in light of Mark, you'll see how the theology of the Christian church developed. There are two problems with this. One is the Gospels all testify to the same thing, just from four different vantage points. But the, for from the historian's perspective, there's a huge problem with regarding Mark as the first gospel. All the historical evidence, that is, those people who are in the best position to tell us who the gospel writers were, uh, Papias and Polycarp being two major witnesses, regard Matthew as the first gospel. But because of the assumption that, that the, the theology had to develop such that Mark has the most primitive or general Christology, and John has the highest Christology, they assume uh, that the theology evolved. And it just so happens that redaction criticism started to flourish just as Darwin's pushing biological evolution. Um, the, another form of higher criticism is typically known as form criticism, uh, which looks at units or little readings passages in the Gospels or other parts of the Scripture and tries to find their peculiar source. Um, for example, Rudolf Bultmann was, was a huge figure in, or is typically associated with, with form criticism. He believed that the, the task of the biblical scholar was to demythologize or find the mythological source from which the Gospel writers drew their information. So he'll make a lot of, or place a lot of emphasis on the the Greco-Roman mystery, mystery religions, or also the Persian uh, mystery religions, and say this is where the gospel writers got the idea of a dying and rising God. It's not that they actually witnessed this, but they got it from other sources. These three forms of higher criticism are, for the most part, minus the radical skeptics that are still around, or have largely been discredited by just your sort of average um, uh, reasonable scholar. In fact, there's a book out there 
I believe written by an author, uh, a man whose last name is Meyer. I can't remember, it's maybe David Meyer, called The End of the Historical Critical Method, which exposes the, the presumptuous philosophical assumptions that are behind historical criticism. There's another work out there by a student of Rudolf Bultmann, uh, Etta Linneman, who uh, the title of her book is Historical Criticism, a Scholarship or Ideology. And what she shows is that these so-called scientific scholars of the text actually approach their scholarship with a whole a, a worldview in mind uh, already. That is, they believe that, for example, miracles are, there's no such thing as mir- miraculous intervention. God does not intervene in nature if God exists to begin with. And so therefore, based on this, this large comprehensive assumption, when they approach the text, they automatically rule out the miraculous before any sort of investigation. Uh, a, a, an American example of this is Thomas Jefferson and his Jefferson Bible, where he took the Gospels and har- harmonized them. Anytime he found something that didn't appear reasonable to him, mir- miracles and things like that, or a fulfilled prophecy, he just simply took a razor blade and cut them right out. Uh, that's not scholarship. That's ideology imposing itself upon fact, if you will. We're looking at text criticism. Text criticism, its uh, to some it might seem like scary business, like it might fly in the face or upset your faith. Um, so hence the reason why I approach this with a bit, bit of, uh, of fear, especially because Dr. Van Voris is here, and I know he's going to ask me some sort of pesky question. <laughs> But text criticism is necessary for two reasons. One is, we don't have, again, we do not have the original autographs. One wishes we did. It shouldn't surprise us that we don't, though. Papyrus, which the the apostles presumably wrote on, because that's what everybody is writing on in the first century, decays fairly quickly unless it's preserved in the sands of Upper Egypt. Um, The apostles, as far as we know, didn't go to Upper Egypt. Another reason why we need text criticism, a, a humble text criticism, I should add, is that the manuscripts are, in fact, filled with copyist variants. So text criticism is very useful at trying to discern what the original autographs said. If there's a book, actually two books, that one should pick up and read on this very topic, um, they would be uh, Daniel Wallace's Reinventing Jesus, where he goes after men like Bart Ehrman, uh, Robert Price, and others, and shows that if you approach the text, the manuscripts themselves, with a bit of epistemic humility, that is, you don't assume you know everything going into your your research, but you rather let the evidence and the research guide you to your conclusions, he says one will come to the conclusion of classic Christianity in terms of how it regards the text of Scripture. Uh, The other book I'd like to suggest that is worth reading is a book written by Craig Evans called Fabricating Jesus, where he goes after the same uh, uh, whipping boys as as Daniel Wallace, Bart Ehrman, Elaine Pagels, Robert Price, and others. Great reads written for a popular audience, written purposely for the laity, for people like you and me, so we can understand the, the professional side of, of biblical scholarship or the scholarly side of, of, of biblical scholarship. If you don't want to read these books, ask the pastors. 
Uh, they'll tell you all about it, right? Best <laughs> One more thing before we actually get into some of these, these variants that are out there. Um, a, a brief caveat, or um, just so you know, so if I see people leaving the, the classroom before this lecture is over, to, to alleviate or ease my conscience that you're not out there setting a fire uh, to burn me at the stake at the end here, I want to first say that I take the scriptures as Jesus took them. Uh, something I heard uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, most I think all of you know him, um, say once was that whatever you want to, however you want to describe the scriptures is fine, so long as your conclusions about the scriptures is the same as Jesus. Call it what you want. Inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, all that, that's all fine. But our view of the scripture, my view of the scripture is, I hope it is, at least I strive to point such that it is, that's the view that Jesus took. That is that the Old Testament is the very word of God. It's authoritative. And that the New Testament in John chapters 14 through 16, where he, where Jesus promises the paraclete, to the apostles, to guide them in all truth, to, to, to cause them to recall everything that Jesus taught them. I take that as indication that what they write, or what's written in their midst as they check it, is the inspired, the very word of God. So don't start a fire and prepare to burn me at the stake. I'm at, and please hear me out to the end. We have to... With this caveat, we have to take very seriously this this uh, this this claim that the texts are are filled with errors or variants because they simply the manuscripts I should say simply are. That's just a matter of fact. Sorry to say. Um, and you're finding out what we're finding out there on on the street, so to speak, is that the new atheists or the atheists in general, uh, the the Muslim apologists. And just your skeptics in general are out, all out there quoting the radical works of text criticism to suggest that people like you and me who trust, we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, but trust in these texts to give us an accurate picture of Jesus, of what he said and did, are simply, uh, in the words of like a Richard Dawkins, silly, if not ignorant, because the texts are riddled with, with problems. Now, I mentioned that the manuscripts have lots of variants in them, thousands of them. What are the nature of these variants? The nature, actually, if you look at them closely, it's not all that significant. About 72% of all the variants in the ma all the manuscripts out there, you can attribute to spelling errors. For example, uh, John is sometimes rendered Johannes with two N's, or news in Greek. Or one N. There's a whole slew of those. Spelling errors like that. In the Greek language, when you have a word ending with a vowel and starting with a vowel, oftentimes they would put an N in between those two words, what they call a movable new, to help break up the reading. It's sort of like the between the A and the AN in the, in the English language. Some copyists later on just simply remove the movable new, especially as, as writing developed. It used to be all the, in, the, in the Greek New Testament, the earliest manuscripts, the sentences are just sandwiched together. There's no full stop. There's no chapter and verse. Uh, it's all put together in one text. 
And so it's hard to make up where one word ends and one begins. The movable new is at least one tool to help you, uh, to help the reader understand that. But, but later copyists got rid of the movable new because words started set, were separated from each other. Uh, and then there are nonsense, um, uh, spelling errors. Uh, some scholars who look into this, specialists of this, this field, say that you can actually tell the habits of the scribes in the earliest church by looking at some of these spelling errors. You can tell how long their shifts lasted. Because <laughs> towards the end of some of these manuscripts, chi, which is and in Greek, K-A-I, is rendered kurios, Lord, Q-U-R-I-O-S. They look kind of similar, but kurios in place of, or Lord in place of and just doesn't make any sense. You find a couple of those kinds of errors, actually hundreds of them. But it's when it's most think as the scribes got towards the end of their shift, and remember they're not working with Microsoft Word or whatever the cultic form for Mac is. Um, sorry. <laughs> There's probably a lot of Mac users in here. <laughs> as uh, Dr. Montgomery once said, in the beginning of his lecture, he wanted to know where, where church body everybody was from so as to ensure that he offended everyone in the room. Um, I don't use a Mac only because I'm too primitive to, to move to one um, and too cheap to buy one. But uh, they didn't have word processors with spell check. They didn't even have light, or light, like electrical light. They had candles or lanterns. And so it's completely understandable that after several hours of copying something that you might make a, a spelling mistake. Um, if, for example, we brought not mine, but uh, Dr. Van Boris's master's thesis in here. If he didn't get an online master's degree, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> uh, it's probably about 65,000 words long, maybe a little less, about the same length in word count as the Gospels. And we passed though that manuscript or that manuscript out to each and every one of you, made a copy of it, and had you gave you several hours under candlelight, sitting outside probably, uh, and told you to copy it. Chances are you'd make some errors, right? So it's completely understandable what they, these sorts of errors would make, with, that scribes would make these sorts of errors, and they don't make one bit of difference when it comes to the, rely, the historical or the, the historical narrative that these texts record. Certainly, they don't make one bit of def difference when it comes to the, theolog the theology of the text. That's about 72, 73% of the variance you find in the manuscript tradition. Uh, about 20, 20 plus, so 21, 22% of the variance are differences among the, the manuscripts that don't affect the meaning or the translation that aren't of the nature of the first category, spelling, the movable new going missing, or nonsense co nonsensical copying errors. Uh, a big example of this are in, in, the man, in the New Testament, sometimes you have proper names that are given definite articles. For example, Luke. Chapter 2, verse 16 says, So they hurried off and located Mary and Joseph and found the baby lying in a manger. In the Greek, it's so they hurried off and located the Mary and the Joseph. Sometimes you have the manuscripts have the definite article uh, relating to the, the proper noun. Sometimes it's not there. Scribes probably thought we don't need it because everybody knows that when you name a particular person, you don't need a definite article to emphasize that. But some of the earlier scribes kept it in.
There's a whole slew of these things. And when you, when you look at the six or 30,000 manuscripts, depending on how you want to cut them up, if you include the, the translations, you'll have up to 30. And every time there's a definite article in front of Jesus' name and not in another manuscript, that counts as a variant. And think about that over the court, over thousands of manuscripts. So the number can rack up pretty high. Uh, sometimes under this category, you have word order is changed or transposition of words. In the Greek language, like Latin, for some of you who learned Latin in high school maybe, um, or maybe even elementary school, you know word order doesn't matter all that much. When you translate it out, it all comes out the same way because Greek and Latin and other ancient languages are highly inflected. Um, an example that's oftentimes given is the sentence, Paul or God loves Paul, can be rendered six different ways in Greek, and it all says Paul or God loves Paul. So you can, in in the Greek, if you put God loves Paul, Paul loves God, loves God, Paul, loves Paul, God, God, Paul loves, Paul loves God. So long as the ending on God and Paul remain the same, regardless of where you put them in the sentence, it all translates out the same way. Lots of examples of that as well in in the New Testament manuscripts. Word orders changes, but the meaning of the text, the translation of the text doesn't change. One other example of the, the differences among texts that don't affect meaning or translation that aren't just silly mistakes or something being left out um, is are the sometimes synonyms are used. And a big example of this is in the lectionary tradition. You know, the Bible wasn't passed around like a novel. It was used in the Christian earliest Christian community, primarily in the context of the liturgy, divine service. We have Hundreds and thousands of lectionaries from the ancient world. Um, you know, the, the lectionary that we use wasn't invented in the Reformation. It's been around since the, the first decades of, of Christianity. In the lectionary, when, when, uh, the, I don't know, when people who are planning the, the liturgy or the divine service, I know that's a bit anachronistic, are taking from the scriptures and putting passages from Scripture into a lectionary, that is a a list of readings for the church year, if that section they take out doesn't has lots of pronouns but doesn't have the referent, they sometimes, actually oftentimes, would put in the referent. Uh, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 31 through chapter 8, verse 26, 89 verses, refers to Jesus as he the entire time. If you took that whole section out of Mark, put it in a lectionary, you'd have no idea, unless you're versed in the scriptures, who he refers to. So the, the person who put together this lectionary, the scribe, act for he put in Jesus a couple times, in three different places in one lectionary, in fact. So that the reader, who's not accustomed to, to or who hasn't read the scriptures, would know who this he is, who, who this pronoun refers to. Those sorts of variants make up about 22% of the New Testament tradition. So we're at about 94, 95% of the variants in in the the New Testament manuscripts. There are about 3 to 5%, 3 to 4% of the variants are meaningful, but not really a big deal. Uh, The nature of these sorts of variants are, for example, in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, 
I have that scribbled in here. I hope it's right. Um, Mark 2 and Luke 5, they all talk of, or they all record the accusation of the Pharisees where they, where Jesus, after he calls Matthew, um, the Pharisees, why did, tell, ask the disciples, why does your teacher or your master eat with tax collectors and Pharisees? Some of the manuscripts will add in and drink. Some of them will just have, why does he drink with tax collectors and Pharisees? You find this quite a bit. You find, and uh, it, as, or as scholars look at these types of variants, they say the tendency for later scribes was to harmonize the Gospels, even if it meant it wasn't an, a word-for-word copying. That wasn't a, a standard that they had, apparently. They would try to harmonize these Gospels so that they all said essentially the same thing, so that the facts all cohere. There's no conspiracy going on here. It doesn't affect the reliability of the text in one way or another. Um, it just, it te- just for, for text critics, it tells them how scribes kind of worked and the way they viewed the text of, of, the, of the New Testament. One, that, that's, that's about 3 to 4% of the variants. So we've got 1% left. And these are variants that are meaningful, but we might add just to some extent. Uh, this is just 1%. Uh, for example, I'll give you some of the, the examples that Daniel Wallace likes to bring up because he's, the, I think, one of the leading scholars in this area. Romans 5, verse 1, uh, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. We have peace as a factual claim. There are some variants that have, and it's just a one-vowel difference, have let us have, we, we may have peace with God, or let us have peace with God. So, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. You do find that in a couple manuscripts. Um, and in the Greek, and I'm no Greek scholar, so I'm with the doc, uh, uh, Pastor Rody in the room, I kind of, I'm fearful. Um, it says, one is common, which is, has an omicron, an O. It says, we have peace with God. The other, the variant is ekomen. It's a long O. It's just one vowel difference, and it's an omega here. And it's, it's, in, it's a verbal form in, in the, su- the subjunctive mood. May we have or let us have peace with God. But it's a, there, you find it in a couple manuscripts, I think three manuscripts, not a big deal. Uh, the majority of the tradition says we have peace with God. You can see a scribe slipping up here, but it does make a bit of a, a difference. First uh, Thessalonians 2 verse 7 has Paul writing, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. A gent- the word gentle, uh, epioi, if you add an N to the beginning, means infants. So we were infants, or we were like infants among you, like a m- nursing mother taking care of her own children. One vowel or one, co- one consonant difference doesn't make it, it does change the meaning a bit, but it doesn't make all that big of a difference. And in the variant is found in only about six or seven manuscripts. Not a big deal. But you can see a scribe getting sleepy, uh, reading um, uh, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children and actually slipping in the, the new or the N to make it infant, just making that sort of mistake. Uh, 1 John 1.4. 
Uh, we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. Uh, if you go back at, at the, to the King James Version, it will be your joy may be complete. Uh, some manuscripts have, and it's just another, again, just a difference in a vowel. Some have our, some have your. A scribal mistake again. Uh, our is amon, uh, your is hamon. Just a slight difference in the, in the word will make a bit of difference in the meaning. But, but it's only to a certain extent. It's not all that big of a deal, I don't think. Uh, Philippians 1.14. Uh, Paul is writing from prison here and says, uh, explains how most of the brothers, having become confident in my imprisonment, imprisonment or, or motivated by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some variants, probably as the scribe's trying to explain what he's referring to here when he talks about word, added in the word of God, of God to the text. So you do find some additions like this, and actually you find quite a few of these sorts of additions. They're more, we might say, exegetical additions to help explain what could be a, could be regarded as an ambiguous phrase, but it, but it does make a difference, um, for those, for, for, you know, those who are approaching the text very critically. Now, all those examples, they don't make a whole lot of difference. There are three huge examples, though, that make, in my book, they don't make a whole lot of difference, but there are the, they are oftentimes brought up. One is the ending of Mark. You know, you pick up your Bible, and there's either brackets or a footnote, uh, uh, for, starting at Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Uh, that says this is not found in the early manuscripts. Because uh, when you go to Mark chapter 16, verse 8, I think the last clause is, and they were afraid. You know, Mary uh, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome uh, go to the tomb. They see, they're told that he's risen, and then uh, they, they go back uh, to the disciples, and then it ends at verse 8, and they were afraid. The oldest manuscripts stop right there. Later manuscripts have those those last eleven uh, verses in there. Um, what one does with that? There's a lot of different opinion out there. Um, uh, it's it, the ending is quite curious because it has Jesus saying, uh, "Unless one believes and is baptized, one won't be saved." So we want it to be <laughs> legitimate, but does that mean that that's not the message of the whole New Testament anyway? If you got rid of that that ending. The whole New Testament speaks to that, that one must be, one must be, believe and be baptized. Um, so what you want to do with the ending of Mark, that's, you can ask the pastor what you should do with it, but it isn't in the earliest manuscripts. <laughs> let's say just hypothetically, and I'm not suggesting we should do this, let's say that, that that's removed. Would it change things? No. Um, why is it there? There are a couple of different theories. Uh, one, and I just learned about this this morning, and I won't tell you from whom, um, is that, and there's a, a Fort Wayne scholar who actually has put this forward, that at the end of, at, at verse 8, as Peter was reviewing Mark's work, he thought this was a really quirky ending and decided to add this last bit. That's, a, that's only a theory. There's no evidence to believe that that happened. Um, others say that later church tradition... Um, kind of summarize what happens after Jesus' resurrection and, and put this in there. Cause there is a, there is a, tr remember in, in the ending of Mark, 
Uh, there's a, a comment how pe- uh, believers will be bitten by snakes and not harmed. Um, what else is in there? I'm trying. Uh, they'll drink they'll drink poison and not be harmed. There's a tradition that says John was forced to drink poison and what didn't die. The Apostle John. He was the only apostle to die of of natural causes. Um, uh, we, we recall in Acts, I forget chapter and verse, but Paul is bitten by a serpent and is not harmed. And so some say maybe later the church, as it wanted to bring this to completion, put this in. It, it's hard to say, but we could. It's a nice little passage, but it's uh, not in the earliest manuscripts. You should know about that. Um, John 7, verse 53 through 8 through 11. The woman caught in adultery. That's not, that's a fantastic passage. Not in the earliest manuscripts. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. Just means it went missing as, for some reason or another, in the early manuscripts. And one more. 1 John 5, 7 in the King James Version. King James Version, 17th century translation, drawn from just six manuscripts of the, of the New Testament, or of the Bible, that all date to, at, at the earliest, the 10th century, more likely the 11th century or later, uh, has this in 1 John 5, 7. For the, there are three that testify, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three agree. The older manuscripts say, and the way it's rendered in your ESV or your NIV is, for thee, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Some well-meaning uh, monastic scribe from the Middle Ages uh, probably added in the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, for whatever reason, I think he was probably well-meaning, somewhere in the Middle Ages, and then eventually it finds its way into the King James Version of the Bible. But that the ESV, that the NIV, and a whole host of other New Test or translations of, of the Bible don't add this in, actually correct this mistake, shows that just like the footnotes regarding the ending of Mark and also the woman caught in adultery show that the church is honest with the manuscript tradition. Um, as we find out facts that fly in the face of received tradition, that is bona fide facts, not some spurious theory out there, um, we, we change things to get to the original meaning or the original author, what the original authors intended. This is the, the scope of text criticism in a nutshell, or the, the, the worst text criticism is today, at least from the, the Christian perspective and, and the issues that are, you find within the field today. Lots of, as I mentioned earlier, lots of skeptics and critics of Christianity br- love to bring these up, um, but they don't bring up how 99.6% of these variants make no bit of difference, historically speaking. Uh, what they do bring up is that they bring up the number of variants out there. Thousands of variants. Um, additions to the text. Therefore, it's completely unreliable. And that's about as deep as they get. Uh, being aware of, of some of this stuff, if you're engaged with, with, the, with unbelievers who are reading some of the skeptical material, I think is, is, is of the essence. Because it does seem like uh, a big issue. When you hear the claim, which is a true claim, um, but you have to uh, recognize where it comes from, that there are variants and that there are additions to the text, that sounds shocking, doesn't it? 
But you look at the nature of it, the facts behind that claim, it's not really all that big of a deal. Uh, on that scholarly note, it's not all that big of a deal. I'll, I'll conclude. We have four minutes for, for uh, questions. Yes, sir. I was wondering, the manuscripts, when were they copied? Uh, what period of time? Right away. Uh, the earliest fragment that we have is from, the, from about 125. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John. It's relatively small. There is a fragment that they found in, the, in one of the, the seventh cave at Qumran that might, it's a, a tiny fragment perhaps from the Gospel of Mark, and this is controversial, still being argued about today. Scholars love to argue for decades over things like this that might date to as early as the fifth decade of the first century, so 50s. Um, those are copies already. And so it was copied right away because when when uh, they were written, uh, the message you know Christianity is spreading like wildfire in the face of heavy persecution. In fact, one scholar, Michael Lacona, says if there's one religion that shouldn't have survived in the Mediterranean Rim, it was Christianity because it was would have been easy to disprove, show the body, uh, and nobody did it. So, but as it's spreading, as people are, as the church, as uh, Clement of Rome. A apostolic father writing in 96 AD puts it as he's describing what led the apostles first and then the church to start preaching Jesus to everyone they encountered is because Jesus rose from the dead. So as people are preaching, um, and perhaps, and this is kind of speculative, historically speculative, as the message is fanning out in order to preserve it from being corrupted through oral transmission, and this is Irenaeus's point, uh, you know, a late second century church father, it, the, they finally realized we got to start putting this down. And, and they put it down and copied it and sent it out. Uh, oh, here he goes. So, Dr. Francisco, <laughs> you're a historian. And so we can listen to your numbers, and, and that's fantastic. <laughs> now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, okay? Because numerous times at, at the churches all around us, the evangelical churches, um, are going to respond to all of this sort of talk, or if we try and, and talk to unbelievers or, or even evangelicals to talk about this, are going to come up with, with something like this. They're going to say, you're, you're using secular methods to prove the Bible. The Bible claims that it's a divinely inspired text. And so by you bringing in this sort of inductive historical method, you're, you're kind of weakening our faith. Shouldn't we just uh, b believe and have a childlike faith? And, and mazel to fantastic. Thank you for doing this hard work. But really, I'm, I'm just going to believe because the Bible says to believe and I'm going to have a childlike faith. So thanks, but no thanks. I, I mean, how do you respond to, to that very mm -hmm. common yeah. evangelical response to, to what you're doing? I saw you looking down at a piece of paper, like you wrote, like you wrote the question down, anticipating it all week. <laughs> um, the Bible is the Word of God, absolutely, um, and that's in this community, if you will. None of us hold to anything different, as far as I know. And if you do, you need to see the pastors. <laughs> um, uh, in terms of the, our public witness, if you will, 
if we don't deal with what are facts, and by fact, this, these are facts. This isn't a theory like um, ultra-Darwinian evolutionism, as some might put it. That's a theory. This, these are, this is in the manuscript tradition, and it's, it's, a, it's a serious challenge, I would think. It's not because of the facts, though, but because of what people do with the facts, because of what Bart Ehrman does with the facts. In his book, Misquoting Jesus, he says, and every footnote in every work critical to Christianity goes to Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus and never to any serious scholarship on the New Testament. Um, he says there are between 200 and 400,000 variants in the manuscripts that go behind our printed New Testament. That claim, left alone, is true. But if you look at the nature of these variants, if you look at the, the facts surrounding this, big deal that we should expect to find this. We do not, and I think a lot, you mentioned, if we, we can pick, pick on evangelicals here a bit, they, we do not, Christians do not have a doctrine of inerrancy like the Muslims do. We have a doctrine of inerrancy, if you want to call it that. That's fine. I'm comfortable, perfectly fine with it. Um, the Muslims have a view that God had a law, not, not the real God or the true God, but their invented God. Um, did I say that? Oops. Um, <laughs> that a law has preserved the copying of these manuscripts of the Quran throughout all these centuries. A lot of Christians act like that's the case with the New Testament. Jesus promises the apostles that he's going to cause them to remember everything that he taught them. Doesn't say, and then I'm going to watch over the copying of this manuscript through the centuries. We just don't have that in scripture anywhere. So we have, while we believe the text is inerrant, the original autographs are inerrant, and so too are the copies insofar as they reflect the original autographs. Um, we should if you have this sort of Islamic view of inerrancy and you've, you've, then all of a sudden you're faced with facts, like the, the variants, and you don't know how to deal with that, it actually is detrimental to faith, um, taking kind of a, a fideistic, what some would call a fideistic approach to Christianity that says, well, I believe it because I believe it, essentially. Why do you believe in Jesus? Well, because I believe in Jesus. Uh, why, why are you a Christian? Because I'm a Christian. That's, that's the claim of fideism. We're a Christian... Because Jesus rose from the dead. Or we're Christians, I should say. Uh, because Jesus... I hope, does that answer your question? Okay. He's my department head, so I have to kind of... <laughs> well, we'll talk I had, later. I had a question, that. Adam. <laughs> um, in the afterglow of this repartee between you and your department head. Um, I, 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 it's awesome. Um, I personally, I look back on the last, I'm dating myself, the last 40 years since I went to seminary and look at the progression of what you're talking about with scholarship. And I think it's a positive thing that the text is being accented rather than these other critical methods that were jammed down our throat back in the 70s and yeah. 80s. Yeah. So I just, yeah. as a comment, I think that's a yeah. positive thing that we're concentrating on the text now. Yes. Um, the other thing is, could you comment on F.F. F. Bruce, which um, New Testament documents, are they reliable? That was one book that really had a huge impact on me personally. And I think in the spirit of honest science and the spirit of honest history, uh, it's actually a positive thing to look at the text rather than it being challenging to my faith. At least that's the way I've approached it. So I just wanted to ask you about the F.F. F. Bruce. 
Yeah, that, that's the classic work. Um, uh, F.F. Bruce, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? Is that the exact title? Um, it's out of print now, but you can get, it's online, you can get a, a PDF of it. Um, there's a whole slew of things out there now, dozens and dozens of books that do exactly what Bruce did um, uh, to even more detail. Uh, and Craig Evans, Daniel Wallace, uh, uh, Blanc, Craig Blomberg, um, Richard Baucom, Jesus and Eyewitnesses, is a marvelous, if you can get through it, it's about 800 pages. Um, just a whole slew of texts out there that scholars who are also Christians, because of their scholarship, by the, I'm not saying that, that their scholarship led them to believe in Jesus personally, but their, their scholarship actually bolsters up their faith that the Holy Spirit gave them, um, are finally addressing all this radical skepticism that's been out there, like F.F. Bruce did kind of single-handedly. Is it, was it 40 years ago? I just thought you were 40 years old. I didn't know you were that uh, uh, So... Lots of stuff out there. The the unnerving thing is the the rad and this is always the case, isn't it? But oh, the radical stuff is pop, published by popular publishers and is available in mass at Borders, who's now going out of business, and Barnes Noble and other places. The the solid scholarly stuff, oddly enough, is all published by Baker and Erdman's and Kriegel and all these uh, uh, Christian publishing houses. So you don't see it in the popular bookstores as much, but it is out there. Um, Amazon.com. Yeah. It's fascinating where scholarship, Christian scholarship is, is at with regard to the, uh, history of Christianity in the, in the, the New Testament today. Um, where once the act, the academy, which was one, even in seminaries filled with higher critics is now filled with people like Harry, Larry Hartado who say, actually the Christology of the church didn't develop at all. The historical evidence all says that the church worshiped Jesus as God right away. Why? Because he was. And there's lots of historical evidence for it. Uh, Richard Baucom saying that if you, we look at the text under, as historically, inductively, Dr. Van Voorhis, not deductively, assuming we know what's the case before our research, uh, we look at it inductively, our conclusion is these are eyewitness documents. Uh, Mark and Luke were companions of eyewitnesses as historical documents or as one scholar has characterized them as Hellenistic biographies, they're absolutely reliable. The problem people have with the New Testament, I think I said this last week, if I, my memory's going, but um, the problem people have with it is uh, uh, they have philosophical problems with it. They, they have problems with the miracles, the fulfilled prophecy, but that's, that's not an issue with the text. That's not a problem with the text itself. That's, that's, a philosophical problem they have, and it is a problem because nobody can say miracles don't happen. Who's in a position to say that? Unless you've gone and checked out every miracle out there, a miraculous claim. Boy, one more question, and then we we got to okay. finish. Uh, it seems like the the whole reasoning here is is sort of backwards. The the idea that it, if you have a lot of variations, a lot of different copies, that somehow you have a less reliable picture of what the original manuscript said. Because it seems to me there's one way for sure you could have zero variation, and that is to have only one copy. And I guarantee you, if you had only one copy, you'd have almost no idea what the original manuscript said. Because who knows what went into that one copy. But yeah. if you have a lot of different copies, you can compare them with one another, 
and you can find out, oh, look, uh, you know, this person made a, a typo, or, well, not typo, but whatever. <laughs> Here, you know. You're a philosopher, not a historian. Obviously. Yeah, right, you know, whatever. <laughs> So, uh, you know, it seems like I said, it seems like the whole reasoning that I guess guys like Ehrman or whatever are using is completely backwards. Mm -hmm. yeah. that, that's, I don't yeah. know if that's, that's not really what, a question. It's just a comment, want, but maybe you'd like to answer it. People assume we've got a text like the Muslims claim about the Quran. We don't want that sort of thing, that claim that, the, that, that this text is perfectly preserved over the centuries. You can't find one, one uh, copious variant in it. Because here, what's going on in Islam right now, Islamic studies, is they're finding out, though they're trying to keep it suppressed by threats of violence, actually, there are tons of variants in the Quran. Uh, we, the Christian church has always been forthcoming. Uh, when, when, the past, when pastors go to study at seminary, they read the uh, Nestle Alon version of the, of the New Testament, the 27th edition. Um, if they read the 26th, they're dating themselves. Um, and in that, in the critical edition of the New Testament, there are all the, there's this textual apparatus that points to all the manuscript variants. We've on, always honestly approached our text and always mentioned, oh, the ending of Mark isn't found in the earliest. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the reliability, historically speaking, or the theology of the text. So, and that's exactly what we sh you should find, the these variants, if the text has been copied by hundreds or thousands of people. Um, if we had a bunch of tech copies that were all exactly the same, that would stink of a conspiracy to me. Like the Quran. <laughs> Here, there I go again. <laughs> uh, what, one more? Do we have time for one Real more? Quick. Yes, uh, sir. Do we have any help from the early writings or the testimony of the, of the very first church fathers on these, like Eusebius, that where he might have mentioned some of these things that, to clarify some of this? Yes. I, okay. Yeah. The, uh, and the, the early councils, like the Council of Nicaea, what documents did they use? I, I don't know about the councils, but church fathers mentioned this. Um, and here's the interesting thing with the church fathers. Let's say the, the New Testament disappeared. Let's say Diocletian, when he ordered that all Christian writings be, be destroyed in the third century, was successful. Um, in the church fathers, we, about 95 to 96% of the entire New Testament can be constructed from quotations from the church fathers. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, in terms of their discussion of, of variants and things, you have, there's a little bit of that going on. Um, I can't give you a specific example. I just don't have it in my head right now. Um, but, yes, to answer your question, yes. <laughs> All right. It's half past. Let's call it, call it quits, yeah? Okay. <laughs>